hello everyone and welcome back to our uh, election talk show on the online citizen Asia with me PJ Thumb. Now Singaporeans have overwhelmingly stated they want an internationally respected Indian man who is also well respected by both the PAP and the opposition but uh, the Prime Minister has said the problem with their Indian man is that he cannot speak Chinese. So the SDP have provided us with an internationally respected Indian man who is respected by both the PAP and the opposition who can speak Chinese. And so I give you the next Prime Minister of Singapore, Paul Kambia. <laughs> Thank you very Paul. much. That's way too <laughs> high a standard to meet. Thank you very, very much. Yes. Hey, it's yeah. what the people want. So <laughs> if you if, say so. <laughs> So if you, if you get a chance to be Prime Minister, you will yeah. accept it, right? Of course. <laughs> there you have it, everyone. But, but frankly, I'm not really that keen on it. <laughs> but if asked, I will do it. It is a very <laughs> difficult job. I mean. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, well, I've got other interests. My, my goal is to be Health Minister. Health Minister. Okay, uh, and sense. you know, it's kind of tough. I don't think we've ever had a Prime Minister who is also Health Minister. We've had many Prime Ministers who are Finance Ministers. Right. But never a Prime Minister who is Health Minister. Mm -hmm. Okay, so interesting. Maybe, yeah. Interesting. I think, well, it's the sense of priorities within the Cabinet. Right. And um, what I've always found interesting is looking across the border, every Prime Minister of Malaysia has also been or was first education, education minister. minister. Right. And it really shows their priorities right. and what they consider important. Right. So, yeah. Well, our second Prime Minister, was, was he in education for a while? Yes, he was. Yeah, he uh, was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but not the subsequent ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> well, okay. So. Let's start with the obvious question, I think. I don't think you need any introduction. Everyone knows who you are. You're chairman of SDP, right. uh, you know, well-respected, well-famous uh, doctor, and uh, you're also, was it a colonel in the...? No, I'm not. I'm just a major. Major, yeah. sorry. Yeah, major, sorry yeah. major in the SAF, yeah, yeah. and uh, well-respected by the establishment, by the opposition, right? So. Can you just tell us a bit about why you joined the SDP and what you're hoping to achieve with the SDP and, um, you know, your, in, and how it jives with your own personal values and vision? Okay, I think I've told the story before, but the, you know, I've been in the public sector and healthcare for all my working life, mm -hmm. uh, apart from the time I went overseas for my graduate studies. And uh, essentially, uh, you know, I, I've learned a lot. I've enjoyed working in the public sector. And uh, Singapore has really good doctors, nurses, allied health professionals. We have access to the latest technologies. Um, we've got bright young medical students, nursing students. The trouble is the financing system is a mess. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the result of which is that there's so many people who fall through the cracks. These are not cracks. These are gaping big holes mm -hmm. in the system. And um, I've tried many ways of uh, trying to provide feedback for this. Um, in fact, uh, Corbyn Wan, you know, when he was health minister, he used to have a minister staff meeting with the senior leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've heard from two people that uh, at one of those meetings, he, he, he told them, when Ministry of Health opens its Facebook page, the first doctor to comment on it was Paul Tambaya. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, in fact, I only joined Facebook because that was the only way that I could provide feedback to the Ministry of Health. They set up a website, but there was no feedback. Right. Then they set up their Facebook page, and, and I think Salma Khalek wrote in first, and I was the second one in. So I realized that, you know, I've been to town hall meetings and, yeah. and at these town hall meetings, they'll present their point of view and then they'll look around and say, any questions? And then the PermSec or the director will say, Paul, any questions? <laughs> and then I'll start asking a question right. and then everybody else will ask some questions. 
But you know, they listen politely to you and then that's it. You see, they right. don't make any changes because the decisions have already been made. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that the only way to, to really make a difference was uh, to get into politics. Right. Because when you get into parliament, you ask a question, yeah. they have to answer you. Yeah. They don't always have to give you a straight answer. Yeah. You know, but we've had people like Feng Yinghua and Yi Zhen Zhong who, who have kept on asking and eventually you get an answer which is somewhat similar to what you're looking for. Okay. But then does that actually achieve anything, getting an answer? So information really helps. Right. But one of the challenges is how do you actually create change when all you can do really is stand up in parliament and ask questions. So you know, another really common question then that we get is, well, we know the PAP is going to win. So what actually can the opposition achieve when the PAP can steamroller through anything with just 50% of the seats plus one, which they're going to have. Right. Well, they're going to have a lot more than 50% yeah. plus oh, yeah. one. Oh, yeah, way, yes. way more, yeah. In fact, there's a fear they're going to wipe out the opposition. Yes. So, um, but what we can do is we can get the information. Mm -hmm. See, because as, as you know very well, you know, we don't have a Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. And very often the information is, is trapped in some black box somewhere. Uh, in some file cabinet, in some uh, uh, encrypted file somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really bad for democracy. It's, it's really bad for a functioning society. Mm -hmm. And it's really bad for, um, for science. It's, it's mm. really bad for you know, public health, for public policy. And you know, the PAP is really strange. In, uh, in many ways, it tries to steamroller things. Yeah. But there are certain things which are, are, are pain points, you know, as, as they would say. Um, where when the public becomes aware of some, something, mm -hmm. then it's impossible for the PAP to move. You know, the classic example which I brought up in uh, Bukit Panjang, which is where uh, I've been walking the ground, uh, is, I've been walking around before because a large part of Bukit Panjang is part of Holland Bukit Timah, right. but that's another story. Yeah. But, um, you know, in 2017, Corbyn Wan actually stood up and said that the Bukit Panjang LRT was an afterthought that mm -hmm. was put in because of political pressure and he said it was designed in a, in a masochistic way. That quotation is there, September 12, 2017, Straight Times. Now I learned we have to quote chapter and verse. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, <laughs> he, actually, he actually said that. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I talked to people in Bukit Panjang, and none of them will admit to putting political pressure on the Ministry of Transport to build an LRT. Okay. So somehow they just felt that, you know, there, was, there were obviously problems with transport. There was a new town yeah. coming up. There was only that one main road going through and uh, the Bukit Panjang Road, and then the Ring Road, and then the buses, and there was always jams and, and people moving in and out to Trachukang. Uh, and then they decided to build the LRT. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but the information was not made available. Mm -hmm. And uh, because the information was not made available, the policymakers themselves were blindsided. Right. See, they did not realize what was the extent of the demand for the LRT, what were the options. And in fact, in conversation just a couple of days ago, I was talking to someone else about the MRT. Mm -hmm. um, and you know this, the MRT, when it was first developed, mm -hmm. uh, the government actually invited competing teams of experts from Harvard and, uh, and some other in universities, uh, and, and they presented the two alternatives on TV. You know, I was young, but I was interested at that time, and uh, I think I was in, must have been in secondary school. You know? And uh, um, so there was the all-bus approach yeah. versus the uh, MRT. Yeah. A and they even had a public disagreement between uh, politicians from the ruling party. Yeah, Tho Chin Chai wanted the all-bus option. Yeah. I uh, no, yeah. I think it was Tony Tan Tony who wanted Tan, the okay. all-bus approach and uh, Ong Teng Cheong wanted the MRT. Right, right. So uh, Tho Chin Chai had retired right. by then. That's right. Yeah, so so there, was, uh, there was a public disagreement yeah. and there were the experts giving the pros and cons on both sides. 
Uh, and then, of course, the decision was made. Who knows how it was made? But it was made. And, and you know, you can imagine what it would be like if we had an all-bus system today. It would yeah. be a complete disaster. Yeah. So, so I think that's the, the value of 11 opposition members of parliament from the SDP in, in parliament. Mm -hmm. So you can be sure we're going to ask questions. And when we ask questions, you know, it's going to force the government to, to reveal some of the thinking behind the policy decisions. Mm -hmm. And it would actually help the policy decisions because then they realize, hey, you know, the, the, there are not that many people in Bukit Panjang who want a, a, a crazy LRT which is going to break down all the time and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the cost-benefit yeah. equation becomes a, a more clearly understood one. Okay, I think that's fair enough. And mm -hmm. also, I think what I found is that when you get the ministers um, to say things and put them on the record, right. we can then hold them accountable. Right. Whereas if no one asks the question, right. right, then they can then change the story later. Right. They, don't, they don't have to commit themselves to any right. position or explain yeah. their thinking. That is true. Yeah. yeah. But I think another thing, though, is what people are very frustrated by also is, okay, so you can ask questions, but right. how exactly would the opposition want to change anything? Do you, and I think the SDP has articulated perhaps the clearest um, difference of opinion with the PAP, but for our audience, you know, could you tell us what actually is your vision, the SDP's vision for Singapore, and how is that different from the People's Action Party's vision? Well, thanks. You know, the, the SDP's uh, vision is radically different from the, mm -hmm. the PAP's vision. Um, and, and part of it is because of the fundamental principles and the fundamental values. Right. We believe that certain things are fundamental basic rights, economic rights, human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'll take the field which I'm most familiar with, which is healthcare. Yeah. See, the SDP believes that healthcare is a basic human right, mm -hmm. and that nobody should be denied basic healthcare because they can't afford to. Right. See, and the PAP pays lip service to that, in that there are safety nets, mm -hmm. but the safety nets are available for the very poor, okay. and you get people who slip through the cracks, who, who are not poor enough to, to enjoy the safety net benefit. And then you get situations where well-meaning social workers tell them, you know, you've got to become a little bit poorer, then you can get the, the, the benefit, see, which is yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. See, and this is not a Singaporean invention. Mm -hmm. See, what it is, is this is unfortunately the neoliberal view of, uh, of healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, which yeah. sees healthcare not as a public good, but as a commodity. Yeah. And uh, um, you know, as I tell academics who come into Singapore, they're so impressed by what they see. And then they see people with, uh, you know, 50-year-olds who are going blind with uh, amputations from diabetes, which is not well controlled. They say, how can this happen in Singapore? And I say, well, you know, they have to pay up front for their consultations. There's a co-payment, there's deductibles, yeah. and uh, they get limited amounts of uh, paid time off. Uh, and they say, that's crazy. That's what we, we have in America. I say to them, you know, unfortunately, Singapore seems to be determined to repeat every mistake of U.S. healthcare financing of the last 20 years. Right. So instead of looking to Taiwan and Korea, which are very successful universal healthcare systems, you know, the, the neoliberal agenda is driving the uh, healthcare financing system. And, and that's right. frustrating. It's frustrating to me, it's frustrating to so many others, to patients, to healthcare workers, yeah. to, to, to professionals and academics alike. Okay, but the obvious response to that is how would you handle costs, right? right. Healthcare is something where no one ever, if the costs are not restrained, no one ever restrains themselves from consuming healthcare. You always need more healthcare. As someone who lived in the UK a long time, right. I love the NHS. Right. I had all my treatments for free there. I have a chronic right. skin condition, right? 
and it was great working with them, but the costs were always an issue and um, the challenge of uh, restraining these costs was something that, that every government has tried to address in very, very different ways, some with greater success, some with greater failure. Um, so how would you restrain costs? Yeah, there's, there's a one-word answer to that, and yeah. then there's a more detailed one. Okay. The one-word answer, unfortunately, is rationing. rationing yeah. And right. rationing is a term that's used by neoliberals all the time to try and, uh, and tar the whole approach of universal health care. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's a, as you say, you see, when you're providing uh, a universal public good, yeah. you, know, you, you cannot provide a Rolls Royce to everybody. Yeah. You see? So, so the question is, whether, what is the level of, of health care that you're willing to provide? Now, the more detailed answer actually comes from Yui uh, Reinhardt from Princeton, who recently passed away. Mm -hmm. uh, and he made this argument that healthcare is like a three-legged stool. Mm -hmm. There are three parts to it. There's uh, excellence, there's efficiency, and there's equity. Right. And they said there's no healthcare system in the world which has all three. Right. The United States has excellence and efficiency, but no you know, equity. But no equity. Right. So you've got really good healthcare, it's really fast, you get an MRI scan within an hour, mm. you know, but you pay through your nose and they're 40 million uninsured. Right. The UK has got excellence and equity, right. but no efficiency. Yeah. You, know, you wait forever oh, for your yeah, appointment, yeah, yeah. right? But it's got some of the top hospitals in the world. Yeah. It's got really good surgeons. Yeah. You know? And it's free at, and the, it's point free at the point of care. So no one ever has to worry about accessing healthcare. And that to me is yeah. such a, a, a psychologically such an important step to know that you're never going to be denied healthcare. Exactly. Yeah. So, but. So, so Singapore, unfortunately, has a little bit of each. See, so, so we have some pretty good uh, excellence. Uh, we have some pretty decent efficiency. And we have sort of like a halfway there uh, mm -hmm. equity. And uh, in Singaporean terms, what this is is actually it's cheaper, better, faster. Right. You know, you can only be cheaper and better, but you can't be faster. See, or you can be cheaper and faster, but you can't be better. See? Okay. So, so ultimately, it comes down to values. Mm -hmm. See, the United States as a society is, you know, this pioneering idea, mm -hmm. the, the pull yourself up by the rugged bootstraps, individualism. rugged individualism. Right. So for them, uh, efficiency and excellence are important. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't get it, it's because you're weak, you're lazy, you know, you don't deserve that kind of health care. Uh, and that's the pushback against Obamacare. Right, right. Uh, and unfortunately, in Singapore, there's a strain which is tending towards that. Okay. See that you know you hear the stories of all these PAP candidates who pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, who yeah. all had these really mm -hmm. humble backgrounds, you know, and then uh, <laughs> yeah. and then they did so well and became CEOs of multinational corporations. Yeah. You see, the implication is, if I can do it, you can't. You know, I use this as a Michael Jordan example. Right. You see, if you grow up in uh, in North Carolina in a ghetto, uh, and if you're not a multimillionaire by the time you're you're 35, then there's something wrong with you. Right. You know, which is crazy. You yeah. see. But that's the kind of argument that people use. Yeah. And uh, uh, whereas in the UK, the values are completely different. Let, let's talk about values, though, because this is really, really important. And I think this is something which is never discussed enough. What would you say are the fundamental values of the SDP and how does that differ from the PAP? Now, we've kind of answered some of that already, right. but can you, can you go a bit deeper into your your vision of a society in terms of the values that underpin it and how that distinguishes it from the PAP. Right. So, you know, basically the the excellence part of it or rather the competency, yeah. you know, that is a no-brainer. We we all agree on that. See that 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 is something that Singapore has a reputation for. 
um, providing high standards, and, and that's something that we, we, we share completely. It's just the way you get there, uh -huh. you know, and uh, the PAP is deeply entrenched in this idea of the, the natural aristocracy. Right. And, and this actually goes back to the eugenic views that were, were popularized in the 1970s and 80s. You know, the idea that some people are intrinsically better than others, and you've got mm -hmm. to find out who these some people are. And then you've got limited resources. In fact, it used to be on the GEP uh, homepage uh, under the Ministry of Education's website. Uh, there's actually, I, I took a screenshot of it. Okay. It said that uh, Singapore is a small country with limited resources, so we have to concentrate on those who have the potential to do really well. And that's why the GEP tries to identify the, the brightest students and nurture them. Right. You know, that's kind of Orwellian in a way. Yes. Yeah. And uh, uh, with, whereas the, the SDP's approach is the opposite to okay. that. You know, we believe that every child has the potential to do well. Okay. Not every child is going to be an Einstein. Right. But, you know, every child is going to be really good at what they, they, they are good at doing. Okay. And, you know, some children have uh, children with disabilities. My mom, as you know, has, uh, yes. she knows your mom very well. Yes, <laughs> yes, they work yeah, together both, in exactly, charity. In yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, she has always felt that every child has the right to an education. She mm -hmm. was one of the big... Uh, movers of the compulsory education for children with disabilities, right. and that every child has the, the right to live out their potential. It may not be the same for every child, and it most certainly is not going to be the same. And in fact, uh, uh, one of the, the strongest memories I have of, of visiting the, the school, the special school which she started, was on the uh, end of year concert. Mm -hmm. And these kids are so disabled. You know, some of them can barely move their, their hands or, or, or just lift their eyebrows. Uh, and the teachers were there putting together these items and having these musical things. And the parents were there taking pictures of the kids, you know, just like a kid in a normal uh, kindergarten. Right. And it was just so heartwarming, you see, the idea that, uh, that, you know, a child even with such a severe disability has the potential to appear on stage, you know, and make the parents happy. So you'd say then what characterizes the SCP and how it drives your policies mm. is, this, is this value of uh, inherent dignity and equality of, how would you call, call you well, know? Well, it's, it's a kind of egalitarianism. Yeah. And it's also a recognition that, you know, um, that we're all the same, you see. Uh, and these are things that are actually in our national pledge. You yes. know, to build a democratic society yes. based yes. on justice and equality. That's yes. it, you see. I mean, we say this every day in school. You yeah. know, we say it really fast so we can't maybe catch the words. Yeah. But, uh, I'm, but, I'm, but that's it. I've um, been told, like, uh, people, you know, online trolls have been like, oh, don't bring in democracy, it's a Western invention. And yeah. I'm like, well, wait, it's in our pledge. Exactly. Well, yeah. You know, we're supposed to achieve democracy. Every school kid says yes. it every day. Yeah. Yes. We used to say it every day. I don't know whether they still do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well I have no idea. Yeah. I should ask my son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So okay. So applying this to your other policies, right? right? How would you, for example, what are your policy differences based on these values? With, uh, I think most Singaporeans are very focused on, or at least older ones, on this on CPF, right. on the HDB. Uh, you've mentioned education and healthcare, right? right? And of course, um, sort of jobs or. Um, income employment. Can you talk a bit more about your party's yeah, position? So, um, you know, yesterday there were the Prime Minister was talking about jobs, 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 and so was yeah. Vivian. And so um, we'll start with jobs. Yeah. Okay, so, so we believe that every job is intrinsically valuable. In fact, yeah. that's the interesting thing about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, um, investment banking, you know, management consulting are not considered essential jobs. Whereas garbage collection, you mm -hmm. know, uh, or plumbing, you know, mm -hmm. those are considered essential jobs. And in certain countries, it's like that. You know, in, uh, in Australia, when my dad was doing his postgraduate, 
he used to joke, he said it's harder to get to a plumber than to a doctor. Mm. And the plumbers are paid really well in Australia. It's mm. the same in Japan, it's the same in Korea, where, where certain skilled professions uh, attract a certain reward. In fact, Tommy Cole mentioned that. He, he compared bus drivers in Scandinavia with bus drivers in Singapore. Mm. And the gap between the salary of a bus driver and the salary of a banker uh, is hugely different in Singapore versus uh, Scandinavia. So the fundamental way to start dealing with this is through the minimum wage. And the minimum wage, it doesn't just raise the level of the, uh, the so-called blue-collar worker in Singapore, yeah. but it actually raises the, the whole population because what it does is it gives money into the pocket of the blue-collar worker. So the blue-collar worker is able to afford the resources for his, his or her children, and then you, you have the social mobility kick in. You know, there's all this talk from the neoliberal world that you know, minimum wage will cause, cost jobs. Yeah. You see, but if a job is only going to be sustainable, if it pays below a living wage, it's not, worth, it's not a job that's worth having. And, and what happens in countries which have minimum wage? Okay, look at the countries which have minimum wage in Asia. Mm -hmm. You've got Hong Kong, you've got Japan, you've got mm -hmm. Taiwan. You know? These are countries which are right at the top, you know, compared to countries which do not have minimum wage. Mm -hmm. See, you've got Laos, Cambodia, you know, where you can pay people pennies. Right. So, so the, the fact is that when you have a, a minimum wage, you're forcing the bosses to, to modernize, to use technology, to improve productivity. Mm -hmm. So they, they are, otherwise they'll go out of business. And, and, and it is true. In that situation, the minimum wage may drive some people out of business, but perhaps these are the people who should go out of business in the first place. Mm -hmm. so, so this is where the, the minimum wage comes in. In the first place, it's for the local workers. Right. And in the second place, which we feel very strongly about, is a minimum wage is also a way to stop the exploitation of, of migrant workers. Right. And this is something that's really come home with the, with the pandemic. Yeah. You know, I've been to the dorms and they're really sad places. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's so hot, it's so crowded, it's just, um, you know, intolerable in, uh, in many of the, many mm. of the dorms. I mean, okay, so address directly then the obvious PAP criticism, which is always that, and you've touched on it a bit, this will drive up living costs this will price Singapore out of, um, you know, it will make us less globally competitive because one of the things that the PAP is terrified by is what happened with the second industrial revolution in the 80s, right? Uh, we both lived through that. I was much right. younger than you, of course, where there was a massive recession because right. the last time the PAP tried to uh, impose wage floors and raise uh, wages, and they declared that our developmental era is over, we're going to be a high-income, high-value production country, right? And they, in some ways, Go King Sui and Lee Kuan Yew foresaw the sort of uh, the shift in the global economy and saw where Singapore needed to go to be a place where we generate capital to invest elsewhere rather than a place which is reliant on foreign capital coming in. But it was a huge failure because it was done too quickly, too fast. Um, it led to a big recession. And that has made the PAP extremely um, gun-shy ever since, right? They've not been willing to do anything more than tweak the economy, but not move from this low-wage uh, manufacturing and services model. So how would you respond to, to this challenge? Yeah, you know, in a way, the, the pandemic is a way that's going to deal with this. See, it's yeah. going to force them to realize that you cannot continue with business as usual. Mm -hmm. See, the... Um, you know, it's really sad. On the way here, uh, I was driving behind a truck, yeah. and there were six migrant workers in the truck. And yeah. I was telling my wife, "Look, nothing has changed." Nothing has changed. You know, that's really sad. But 
But I think something is going to have to change. Yeah. You know, it may, I'm, I'm just hoping it was just that truck and that company, you know. But, uh, but the reality is, uh, as you correctly point out, see, in the 1980s, Lee Kuan Yew and Goh Keng Swee recognized that Singapore could not continue with the sweatshops forever. Yeah. And we've seen that. You know, China is no longer producing T-shirts en masse. It's moved to Bangladesh, you yeah. know, uh, and to Guatemala, or to uh, Saipan and places like that. Uh, and, and so it's just a matter of time before the global economy is going to shift. Uh, and city-states like Singapore are going to move into, you know, what we're already doing, uh, banking services, high-end services, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, the STP is not looking at it from the point of view of the, the top-down, you know, okay. large-scale policy change. Right. See, we, and this again is the difference between the STP and the PAP, mm -hmm. is that we have confidence in Singaporeans. See, and we think that if you start freeing up the economy and you stop micromanaging things, mm -hmm. you know, trying to dictate, okay, uh, we see this in the university. You know, uh, at one point in time, uh, engineering was really hot. Mm -hmm. you know? Then everybody had, who, who got straight A's went into engineering. Then all of a sudden now, uh, data analytics is really hot. Mm -hmm. uh, you can read this online. The, uh, the university publishes the indicative grade point average of people who get into, uh, so five years ago, mm. you needed three A's to get into, say, uh, electrical engineering, whereas you could get into computer science with two B's and a C. Right. Now you need three yeah. A's to get into computer science. Right. <laughs> you yeah. can get into engineering yeah. with two B's and a C. Yeah. So this is the, the top-down, you know, driving the, the policy approach, which, which is the hallmark of the PAP. See, uh, a minister says, okay, we need data analytics. We throw in all the money into data analytics and we start going out from there. Whereas we think that Singaporeans have it within themselves. You know, we've got a really good education system. We've got people who are exposed to the world. We've got people who are, you know, everybody on the train is, is watching some Korean movie or other. And so they, they're not, yeah. you know, confined to, to one way of thinking. See, even though we have a very repressive political system, mm -hmm. but the entertainment world, the access to information is still there, fortunately, mostly. You know, to, uh, outside of Singapore, I'm talking about. I'm not mm. talking about in Singapore. Mm. You know, any Singaporean can look at the, the official data from New Zealand or from mm. uh, Hong Kong or somewhere else see, and, and can study it in great detail. So, so what I think is going to happen is if, you know, 20 years from now and the SDP takes over and, and, and has the power to, to sort of free the economy, yeah. that Singaporeans will come up. You know, and um, I'm not the only one saying that. Uh, there's this famous quotation from Guy Kawasaki uh, from Apple. Yeah. You know, he compared Israel with Singapore. You know, he said, Israel has five, five million people, has five million uh, opinions, it's got 5,000 startups. He said, Singapore has five million people, it's got one opinion, it's got a handful of startups. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's intricately linked. The, when you squeeze people, when you restrict their freedom of speech and freedom of expression, you're not just restricting the way they think about civil liberties, you're also restricting the way they think about solving problems, right, right. about coming up with the next, uh, um, you know, Apple or, or whatever. Yeah. See? yeah, I mean, they do say, you know, Apple is inextricable from the sort of open culture of California. Exactly, Northern California, Valley, yeah. Yes. Um, and and uh, along, along those lines, right, I mean, I'm a small business owner. I have employees across Southeast Asia. And one of the things that I worry about is the fact that we're all freelance. Right. And how do you, one of the things that I, I felt very you know, unhappy with uh, something that Vivian and also Prime Minister said is that their focus of welfare is true jobs. Mm -hmm. But that 
is predicated on two things, one of which we've addressed, the idea that someone's inherent value is economic, right, mm. and measured economically. But the other is this idea of a job in the 21st century being the same as a job in the 20th century, right. where you have a fixed workplace, where you have a fixed employer, where you're going to an office, where you're in the same country as your, um, you know, as, as your employer, and there are formal legal arrangements, regulatory arrangements, which can protect you. How should we cope with the gig economy where many of us are working actually freelance without legal protection, without labor protections for organizations. Some of them are in the same country, some of them are elsewhere. How do we cope with that changing nature of work? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that you know, governments all over the world are wrestling with. Because the gig economy is not unique to Singapore. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, uh, even in Northern California, uh, they're struggling with this issue of how do you protect workers within the gig economy. Yeah. But you know, the, the whole idea of work has also changed with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. you know, people are still not going to work, even though uh, you know, they've, had, uh, they've, they've loosened the restrictions uh, in Singapore. And uh, I mean, the, the traffic is still really good, and the, the ridership on the MRT is, is still nowhere near what it was uh, before the, the lockdown. So it's got to be some time before we figure out how to do it. And this is actually the, the time to have voices in Parliament because legislation is going to come out. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, and, and the question is whether the legislation is going to protect the employer yeah. or whether it's going to protect the employee. Right. And, and you know, this came about with, like, for example, the job support scheme. Okay. See, the job support scheme pays employers. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, in other countries, the money is given to... The employers are allowed to give their workers no pay leave but the government pays the salary to the worker, direct to the worker. Okay. So, so that is actually more targeted. And I think you've seen uh, MOM has actually uncovered um, various nefarious ways that people are making use of the job support scheme. Yeah. Because job support scheme is tied to CPF. Yeah. Uh, and there are some people who just get CPF but don't work. You know, there, there are various scams that are, that are out there that MOM is aware of and that they're trying to crack down on. Right. I'll give you an example. A patient of mine had a stroke and uh, he was going to go home and they were trying to figure out how he was going to get himself supported. And then his friend comes up to him and says, uh, oh, there's no issue. The coffee shop downstairs will, will employ you. They'll pay your CPF. Then they can hire five foreign workers because you're the local person and they can meet the quota. Mm -hmm. I said, that's crazy. I'm going to report you. He said, no, no, please don't. I said, you know, you're going to get found out one day. And he said, everybody's doing it. I said, no, that can't be. Yeah, I'm sure the MOM has a way of figuring it out. Right. But you see, these are the kind of people, if you have somebody, MOM actually specifically addressed this. Yeah. They said, if we find out that you're paying CPF on somebody who doesn't even set foot on your, uh, in your premises, yeah. then you know, not only are you not going to get the job support, we're going to crack down and arrest you for fraud. Wow. So, but that, that's a kind of intrinsic problem that happens okay. if you put the money in the hands of the employer okay. uh, versus putting the money in yeah. the hands of the employee. Okay. So I, I agree on all that. Right, but you're not really addressing the issue of those of us who then don't, uh, because of uh, the contracts that we're working on, uh, because either you know we're freelancers where we have to self-declare uh, or do all this paperwork, we don't formally fall under many of these protections, or we work for foreign companies. And one solution that has been proposed, for example, is universal basic income, right. so that it's your welfare is uncoupled from your job, 
right? What's the SDP's position on this? Do you still see job uh, the job as fundamental to uh, you know the um, sort of long term? Um, I'm trying not to use the word welfare, but yeah, well-being, um, well-being, yeah. and also as a corner, the the formal job as a cornerstone of the economy. Or would you uncouple income from work? Yeah, What's that's that's a there? that's a really intriguing question. You yeah. know, and um, I am aware that there have been trials of universal basic income, yeah. uh, and there have been some issues with it. Uh, and I think it's probably because we haven't quite got the the formula right. Mm-hmm. But you know, the SDP's uh, program for seniors. Yeah. Which, which is $500 every month for the bottom 80% of seniors. Right. Um, and, and the idea is that you, know, you don't want to have a senior citizen living out his last days picking up cardboard oh, or yeah, cleaning yeah. toilets. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to give them the freedom to hang out with their mahjong kakis or to, to look after their grandchildren or go for walks in the park and things like that. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that if we start with that, that cohort, and then we move on to our retrenchment insurance, which provides a proportion of the last drawn salary for a young person. And the idea is that you're not just supporting this young person and helping them to, to just you know, stay at home and play Warcraft or something like that. Mm-hmm. But actually what you're doing is you're encouraging a few of them to get together and start a business. Mm-hmm. So, so the young people actually have the potential to, to use if they had a buffer. And that's the idea behind universal basic income, is it gives you a buffer. Mm-hmm. So you're willing to take a risk. You know, if you had, say, $1,500 a month, and then you knew that you, know, you could pay, uh, pay whatever your, uh, your mortgage is or, or you're still staying with your parents and you could still give some money to them, then you have a little bit of extra cash, but you could take the risk yeah. and set up something that addresses a problem or a need in society and in the economy. And I think that's where we need to go. See? And, right. and you're quite right. You know, I mean, before the Industrial Revolution, everybody lived at home and worked at home. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, then they started moving to the cities and then the, the dark satanic mills. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then yeah. you had to have football to entertain the, the workers on the weekends. Right. And, but you know, coming back specifically to the gig economy, and, and you know the SDP is a social democratic party. Yes. And, and the solution is ultimately unionization. Yeah. You see, it's mm-hmm. got to be collective action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be getting together with like-minded people. Uh, and, you know, I see this in my own field. You know, the drug company comes up to us and they say, okay, we'll offer you a special deal. You know, you, you, you put in this number of patients in. Uh, I'll say, wait a minute, I'll get back to you. Then I call out my friend at SGH. What kind of deal are they offering you? I call out somebody in, in Tantok Seng. And then we all get together. And this is where information is key. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to share the information and then you can see. Then I turn around to the company and say, hey, you're offering them this deal. Mm-hmm. You know, why are my patients not getting that kind of deal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think we saw that in the U.S. where hospitals were exactly. resisting publishing the prices. prices. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, that's one of the things that Trump did because under Obamacare, you see, they were allowed to negotiate in bulk. Yeah. You know? And yeah. then uh, he actually tried to take that away. Right. So, so the divide and rule is the oldest trick in the, in the colonialist book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, if I can ask you... A, a tough question, immigration, okay. right. right? And I think that there has been a feeling that um, the, the a lot of the opposition parties are become you know are veering close to xenophobia, right. and uh, there is this um, there's been uh, questioning of you know why do we need so many low wage foreign workers, which is valid, but then um, there has also been you know like uh, this idea of course of uh let's you know singaporeans above others right. 
Right. Can you talk about the SDP's position on this? Uh, what is your vision for immigration? And then of course, also your, uh, Sun Juan, Dr. Chi pinned down Vivian specifically on the 10 million and 6.9 million issue, right. right? So what is your vision for immigration and the role of non-Singaporeans um, in our country, in our society, in our economy going forward? Yeah, those are very good questions. And let me start with these 10 million and 6.9 million. Just yeah. before getting here, I was on the phone with Sundran. Yeah. And, and he pointed me to uh, Sudiv uh, Vadakath's uh, blog, where, where he actually gave the backstory behind the, uh, this whole 10 million and 6.9 million thing. And, and it's really fascinating because the, the 10 million came out from a Straits Times report mm -hmm. in March 2019 of yeah. a forum that Heng Sui Kiat did at NTU. And so Sudhir dutifully reported it. And, and in that report, uh, the Straits Times had mentioned that uh, Mr. Heng had mentioned Liu Taika's uh, 10 million population. Mm. But Sudhir had a back and forth with uh, the DPM's office. And ultimately, the DPM's office provided him with the transcript of what actually happened. Oh, OK. And what was interesting is that DPM Heng didn't mention the 10 million at all. So it was the Straits Times which extrapolated from DPM Heng talking about Liu Thai Ke and the fact that Liu Thai Ke had recently talked about uh, a 10 million population. Oh, I But you see. know, that only came out after the event. And yeah. how are we to know what's happening behind the scenes between the Straits Times and, uh, uh, and the DPM's office? So we just take the Straits Times as you know, which is supposed yeah. to be the, uh, the provider of yeah, truth, the newspaper of, of record. record. Uh, and so we took that and we, we ran with that. And you know, hmm. 10 million, frankly, from an infectious disease point of view, the one lesson of the pandemic is overcrowding is a recipe yeah. for disaster. Yeah. So if you have 10 million people on this crowded island, it's clearly a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And so when Sunjuan brought that up, you know, um, Vivian rapidly denied it and tried to, and now the PMO has denied it. And the, they you only know, the, denied it yesterday morning, I know, I think, which right? is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, they denied it, I think, after the debate. I think I'm not sure what the timing was. Around, but it was, it was unfair same, yeah. to ask Sunjuan to yeah. know that the PMO exactly. had denied it. Yeah. It had just come out. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's actually the, the whole point of this. Yeah. You know, we don't bring up an argument just to win an argument. Yeah. We bring up an argument because we think it's wrong to have 10 million people on this island. Mm. So in fact, I told Sunjuan, we won. You know, we, 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 had, we had five <laughs> points in our, uh, our campaign. Now yeah. we've only got four to fight for. Right. And this must be some kind of record. Even right. before we get elected, we've already <laughs> achieved one of our goals of our campaign. We've got the government to deny a 10 million population. And he said to me, right. look, don't be so optimistic. You know, he said, they're right. going to play a switcheroo on us. I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. So that they've actually is, the, before, is yeah. the, they've done that before again and yeah. again and again. Yeah. So, so that's the whole point. They have to, we have to elect uh, opposition members into parliament so that you can hold them to what they've said. So now they've said, okay, 10 million is not on the agenda. And you know, this is the government which argued that 200 meters from a polling station is not the same as being within 200 yes. meters from a polling yes. station. So maybe they mean it's actually 10 million is not on the agenda, but 9.99 million is on the agenda. So, so you've got to be there in parliament to ask the questions, to say, okay, you said 10 million is not. Are you also gonna say 9.99 is not on the agenda? Right. And what was interesting is in the, uh, in the transcript, which is in Sudir's blog, um, he actually mentions that uh, somebody tried to pin him down, one of the NTU students, to, to a number. Yeah. And he said it has to be a discussion. Right. And, and I agree, it has to be a discussion. So let's start that discussion. See, what is the optimum uh, uh, population for Singapore? So, you know, and, and there's so many factors that go into this. Mm -hmm. If you're doing low-wage manufacturing, you need a large population base. 
You know, but if you're doing high-end skills uh, where, or gig economy where people are working from their homes and coming up with creative things, uh, you don't need a huge number of people. Okay, so I'm not going to ask you for a specific number, obviously. Sure. But again, the question right, is always, we know what the SDP will fight against, right. but what will the SDP fight for? And what is your vision of Singapore and our future and our society and the role of foreigners? Very good. What so my vision, vision actually yes. is a vision where everybody is treated the same. Okay. And, and this goes down to the migrant worker population. See? Right. You know, what is it um, that makes... Uh, a company hire an IT professional from, say, the Philippines or India against somebody who is a, a, a polygraduate from Singapore. See, and, and ultimately, if you talk to them, they'll say, oh, the polygraduate is more demanding. I say, yeah. So what is he demanding? Oh, he's demanding a $3,000 salary. Yeah. Does he have a, uh, parents to look after? Does he have a, uh, you know, is he going to get married? Yeah. How much do you think that's going to cost? Mm. But he's demanding. <laughs> you know, this actual conversation took place a week ago. Right. He says, that's why, so I asked him, uh, he works in an IT company, and he, uh, and he says, oh, you know, uh, I asked him how many other Singaporeans are there. He said, well, there's only one other guy, he's a former Malaysian. I said, how many people do you have? He said, we've got 15 of them. Where are they from? Five are from Philippines, uh, six are from uh, India, and four from, uh, two of them from Myanmar, and somewhere else. So I said, are they really that good? He said, well, they're good. I said, is the poly guy worse than them? No. Then why are you hiring them? Because they're willing to work for $2,500 a month. And, and, you know, that is exploitation. It's exploitation of the Filipino guy because he's doing work which should be paid $3,000 or $3,500 a month. Mm -hmm. But the, the market is spoiled by the fact that there's so many of them who are willing to work for $2,500 a month. Okay. And he's forced to live. You know, these guys, they share, four of them share an apartment or six of them share an HPB yeah. apartment, you know. And they work really hard. They work overtime because they come here for a few years. They make enough money, they go home. Yeah. You know, so during that time, which they should be spending with their families, you know, they should yeah. be bringing up their children. So many, or they should be, you know, getting to know, uh, getting to start families, or, or looking after their, their elderly parents. So it's it's yeah. the exploitation, which it's a whole ecosystem. Okay. So just just to be clear, the the Myanmar guy or the Indian guy are actually also in Singapore. They're in Singapore. They're not located in. Yeah, they're not Yangon located in or... Yangon or anywhere. They're actually located in Singapore. They're okay. S pass holders, you see, who are who are here, oh, who are brought in, okay. and this is where the the problem comes in because the company has to, you know, my, the, my friend is the, the Singaporean guy. He, yeah. he gives the company a quota. So because he's, they have employed a Singaporean, so they're allowed to hire a certain number. And in certain industries, there's no quota as well. Right. So, so effectively, it's a race to the bottom and everybody suffers. See, so now the poly guy can't get a job in this guy's company because uh, my friend thinks he's too demanding. So what does he do? You know, he ends up uh, becoming a real estate agent or, or a grab driver. Mm. Uh, and, you know, even though he may make more money, mm -hmm. but the, the job is less secure. Uh, it's, it's, it's essentially the gig economy all over. I mean, the poor yeah. real estate agents, nobody's buying houses at, at a time like this. Yeah. You know, and you're very, very dependent on, on the okay. other so parts So the PAP's the argument would be, well, these people make us more competitive. Right. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so, but we don't want to compete on the basis of cost. Uh -huh. See, we want to compete on the basis of excellence, of quality, of responsiveness, and above all, in terms of location and connectivity. Right. See, Singapore was actually the center for the League of Nations Health Organization from the 1930s. You know, oh. that was the predecessor of the World Health Organization. Yeah. There are two centers, one in Geneva and one in Singapore. Yeah. And the reasons they gave were the geographical location of Singapore and the fact that it was connected by telegraph to every major Asian capital. Yeah. So they kept track of epidemics occurring on ships uh, in, in Jakarta, in, in uh, Cochin, China, in, right. you know, in Bangkok. 
Uh, and it was funded by Japan, but who obviously wanted to get some intelligence, I'm sure, yes. about Singapore. Right. And uh, um, you know, the other countries uh, within the region. So Singapore has this competitive advantage. We're right in the middle of two oceans. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't have to tell you that. Yeah. But you know, the, the, the fact is that we have always been uh, at the crossroads. Um, you know, we want to hold a, a webinar. Mm -hmm. We hold it at 7 o'clock in Singapore, which is just nice. It's the middle of the day in Europe. It's mm. early in the morning in the US. Mm. You know, even with, uh, with the, all these restrictions on travel and stuff like that, we're still in the right place. Mm. See, so, so we have that advantage. Um, and we have a background. You know, we have the, the head start with uh, the development, with the technology and, okay. and all that kind of thing going for us. Right. So, so we don't have leverage, right? We don't have a strong class of local domestic capital to take up the slack. Because the argument again and again is almost 50% of our GDP comes from foreign-owned companies. If we raise the cost, they will all leave because they're foreign-owned companies. They don't have to be here. We, our foreign investment will decline and then there will be no jobs, there'll be economic disaster. And unlike China, you brought China, you brought up, you know, we brought the Asian tigers, they've all developed strong domestic capital class to give them leverage and to, as a buffer when foreign capital, foreign investment goes away. This was our part of our disaster in the 80s. And we, for various reasons, right, including because of the fact that local capital, local capitalists tended to vote against the PAP and organize against right. the PAP, right, they were severely curtailed, suppressed. Right. Um, and so we're in a situation where we don't have enough leverage. So the argument again and again will be if you want to, to raise salaries and pay people uh, living wages, it's going to then affect everyone because it'll destroy the economy because all these companies will leave and they're almost 50% of GDP. Yeah, you, you know, that's exactly the point. Yeah. Is that we had a situ situation where we had local capital. Yes. Yeah, but they were all anti PAP, or the majority of them were anti PAP. Yeah, the Chinese so, speaking exactly, merchants. And Indian, so they yeah. ended up getting chopped. So we need to get back to that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think this is what's going to happen with the opening up. I mean, what could have happened if we didn't have a pandemic election where they're going to do a wipeout? You know? <laughs> if we had a normal election and yeah. we had the trajectory that we had, you know, in 2006, 2011, the by-elections of 2012, 2013, it was with, of course, the 2015 freak election mm. with, the, with the memory of uh, uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew yeah. 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 But we were moving along a trajectory uh, with uh, more loosening and opening up. And then, of course, we have the pandemic, and now they're calling an election where people are going to do a flight mm. to safety. Mm. So, so we're, we're moving backwards. But, you know, history doesn't, doesn't always, you know, move in, in a predictable fashion. And, and I think the, the reality is that the world is changing. The pandemic has changed the world. Uh, things are happening around us in Southeast Asia. I mean, you know probably much better than I do what's happening in Indonesia with the startups. Mm. I mean, it's just remarkable that the, the number of startups that are coming up after yeah, the end of the new order. the population is under yeah. 21. Exactly. And there's so much energy and vibrancy. Yeah. I love going to Jakarta just because yeah. of the sheer chaos and energy of the well, place. Well, I hate the traffic there. But yeah, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, the MRT, big thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, but it, it, it really doesn't seem like we should be relying on other countries to screw up in order yeah. for us to do well, you know? Exactly. And, you know, again, uh, I mean, I hate to use this example, yeah. but some of the best match fixers in the world are from <laughs> Singapore. You know, these are guys who, who grew up in Sembawang and, you know, they, they were petty gangsters in Sembawang yeah. and now they're fixing matches in Italy, in Finland, in Hungary. 
you know, mm. so Singaporeans have the creativity. They just need it channeled in the right direction. Right? You see, yeah, 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 you don't yeah. go and screw up the Serie A matches. You know, you yeah. just come up with something that will benefit kids, that will benefit you know society as a whole, rather than destroy the game of soccer. Okay, specific to you, right? The pandemic. How right. would you have handled things differently? Yeah. How, you know, what do you think was done right? What do you think was done wrong? I suppose more specifically, what do you think, think was done wrong? How would you have handled it differently? You're going to be chair of the International, International Society for Infectious Disease. Which, yeah. I mean, is is incredible. In the middle of pandemic, yeah. they pick you or yeah. all people who run the society. So congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the way Singapore ran the pandemic in January and February was almost perfect. Yeah. See? And, and that's the way it should have been done all the way through. See, where there was a strong emphasis on public health, there was contact tracing, there was development of testing, there was development of technology. Um, the, the one thing that concerned me in January and February was that the ministerial committee was taking the front and center mm -hmm. uh, of the role. And this was different from SARS. In SARS, there was a ministerial committee, but the ministerial committee was in the background. Right. And you had the scientists and public health people in the front. And, you know, in January and February, when things were working relatively well and things were move, moving smoothly, it was kind of okay if the politicians wanted the limelight. Okay, fine. You know, that's yeah. a politician. They want to get, claim the credit. Yeah. But when things started going south, you really needed the experts to come in, okay. you know, and to, to be able to overrule the, the ministerial committee. You know, a lot of people have recognized that probably the turning point was when Ministry of Manpower issued a statement. You know, there was a cluster of workers at the Salita Aerospace, yeah. and, and MOH did a really good job. They, they went and did contact tracing. They quarantined all the contacts of the workers. They isolated the infected cases. They treated them. They tested them. And the cluster ended. It was just five Bangladeshi workers in February who were involved in a construction site. They right. lived in a dormitory, but they screened the dormitory, they, they, they cleared everything out, okay. and, and they kept it really uh, well under control. Now, what happened was a lot of the employers started getting nervous, and they said, hey, I've got a bunch of workers living in my dormitory. Shall I send them for testing? And then Ministry of Manpower threatened the, work, the employers. And they said, if you send your workers for testing with no good reason or if they're, you know, or without a doctor getting some kind of authorization, that you will be penalized and you will lose your, your employment privileges. And what was the rationale for setting? They were worried the testing would be overwhelmed. At right. that time, we could only do a few hundred tests a day. Okay. So again, you know, it's like this mask thing, you see. Yeah. You know, the mask, they wanted to prioritize them for the healthcare workers. And they wanted to prioritize the test for, for those who are travelers or those who are perceived to be at high risk. And, and again, this statement came out of MOM. It didn't come out of the public health community, where they said, you know, we're going to penalize you if you start testing your workers. Okay. And so the, as a result of which, the, the Ministry of Health was blindsided. They, they, they were not aware until it really exploded. To use a word you used earlier, rationing, right? If yeah. you're saying that limited mask, limited yeah. testing, right. then what should the alternative have been? Yeah, so the alternative should be getting the experts in to determine how you prioritize these right. things. Okay. See, rather than make it from a political or, or policy uh, decision based on, you know, the squeaky wheel, you know, yeah. who, who makes the most noise uh, and who gets the, the, the priority attention. Mm -hmm. It is not easy. You're right. You know, but at the same time, you need to ramp up capacity, which they did. Mm -hmm. You know, now we're running 12,000 cases uh, tests a day. and Their target is 40,000. Mm -hmm. See, but at that point in time, see, when the capacity was limited, the, the recognition, and again, you know, they, they say it's easy to be wise after the event, but I have two articles which I've written where I mentioned that, you know, nursing homes, foreign worker dormitories in mm. February 
that they were the ones that we need to really watch out for. Yeah. You know, because the people are in such cramped conditions. And of course, NGOs have been pointing out the cramped uh, conditions for a long time. For exactly. a long time. And, you know, it's not as if this is the first time it's happened. Yeah. Last year, we had a measles outbreak, right. yeah. you know, in S11 dormitory, which is the same dormitory that got hit worse by the COVID outbreak. And measles is fortunate. There's a vaccine. There's yeah. a really good vaccine that works. So they had a measles outbreak. Again, good public health. They identified the cases. They, they vaccinated thousands of workers. Right. You know, and they rolled it out and they stopped the outbreak. Okay. See? But they didn't ask what was the underlying cause behind yeah, the fact? Yeah, no, they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> this is the, okay. You know, this is the issue. You deal with the, you, you plug the hole in the dikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, what, how much time do we have? Okay, so a last question, I guess, which sure. is uh, the other obvious question that people are asking. Why Bukit Panjang? And right. I have to say to you, I am personally upset because I, I live in Ulu Pandan Ward, yes. which is where you ran five years ago, yes. and that is where I was going to vote for you again, yeah. right? And I was very happy uh, to be able to go around for five years saying, I voted for Paul Tambia. I even said at the Go Chok Tong, and oh, he, you know, he didn't object. <laughs> you know, he, he, I, he tacitly accepted that's a yeah. good person to vote for, yeah. right? So why the shift from Holland Bukit Timah to Bukit Panjang? Well, you know, again, this is a decision that was made by the party. And actually, you know, <clears throat> people don't realize this, but the, the SDP is truly a democratic party. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, it was brought up a few weeks ago, um, by, not by Sun Juan, by, by one of the other CEC members. He said, looking at the, the layout, you know, the fact that Teo Ho Pin is going to retire, and uh, uh, Bukit Panjang actually is right next to uh, Holland Bukitima. In fact, it's really bizarre. The town of Bukit Panjang is bisected somewhat arbitrarily. Gangsa Road, some blocks are in Holland Bukitima, some blocks are in Bukit Panjang. Right. You know, a large part of Holland Bukitima is not, you know, the landed property. It's actually Bukit Panjang Estate, yeah. the Tsenghua part of uh, Bukit Panjang Estate. Yeah. So we had been walking the ground in that area for a long time. And uh, like many times we cross over and we're not sure whether we're in Holland Bukitima or in Bukit Panjang. Right. Again, that's the trouble with the election boundaries committee that's part of the Prime Minister's office and yes. gerrymandering and all that. So, so the suggestion was that at a time when, you know, Teo Ho Pin is very strong. Yeah. I mean, he's been there for a long time. He was yeah. a, a leader, he was a mayor or something like that. So he had a lot of resources to dispose. So, so the thinking was that, um, you know, when he was stepping down, you see whether we should reevaluate uh, how we, we distributed the, the individuals that we had mm. uh, between Holland Bukitima and Bukit Panjang. And uh, I actually abstained from the decision. We took a okay. vote. Okay. And the, the consensus was that I should move to Bukit Panjang. Okay. And, and you know, Bukit Panjang, like I said, it's, it's not, not far away. It's right next door. Yeah. And it's a place which I was vaguely familiar with. My cousins who lived there and I had an yeah. aunt who was a, a, a GP in that area as well. Yeah. But of course, it's changed completely. You know, there's, yeah. uh, Everywhere in Singapore has changed completely. completely. And uh, I, I, did, I started doing walkabouts with, uh, with uh, Wayin, who, who had been walking the ground there a lot more in the past. And, and the response was very positive. Mm -hmm. you know, people say, oh, we like Teo Ho Pin, but we don't know who's going to come in next. You see? Mm -hmm. so, so we felt that maybe this was an opportunity to, to give the, the voters a chance to see whether they, they felt that you know, we would be the right people to represent them. Okay. And ultimately, the goal is to have the best fit for, for the voters, for the, for the residents, and for, and for, for the public. So, okay, give you a pitch to the voters then. Sure. Why vote for you and not Liang Inghua? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, I, I've met Liang Inghua th uh, three times. In fact, today at uh, Mediacorp, we, we bumped elbows again. And he said, look, it looks like we're going to have to do this uh, every day for the next nine days. Uh, and so he's a really nice, he seems like a really nice person. But uh, the thing is, he's one of 93, you know. And what 
the voters of Singapore need is an alternative voice. And, and you can be sure that the SDP will provide an alternative voice. So we don't want to have a wipeout. We want to have um, uh, an, an alternative voice in Parliament. And I think this is an opportunity to do that. So I hope the voters of Bukit Panjang, you can be sure that we'll run the town council the way we said we would. We will not involve a managing agent. Uh, your town will be safe, clean, uh, relatively dengue-free, and that's a problem right now. Um, and uh, we will deal with the issues as they come. Cool. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Okay, so some questions here. Sure. Um, we have a question from Julian who asks, what made you choose to join the SDP over other parties? Okay, that's very simple. I get asked that question a lot. In fact, yeah. some of my friends say, uh, you know, you've joined the wrong party. Uh, and I say to them, you know, actually, if, the reason why I joined the SDP is I'm not hard up to be an MP. If I was hard up to be an MP, I'd have joined the PAP. You know, I, would, <laughs> I, I would have suppressed some of my views and just, you know, I, I've got all the credentials, right? I'm yeah. a professional academic, oh. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, I, I joined the SDP because I share their values. I, I believe in uh, social, social justice. I believe in democracy. I believe in freedom of speech and expression. I believe that everybody has a right to education, to healthcare, no matter who you are and where you come from. And, and the SDP has clearly defined uh, policies which reflect the ideology of the policy. So, so that's a no-brainer. SDP was the, policy for, uh, was the party for me. And how, how do you address you know, this impression that uh, it's very much dominated by Dr. Chi? And how do you, you've mentioned it's a democratic party. How do you come up with policies? And how, you know, what is it like working with Dr. Chi? Yeah, so you know, that's the trouble with politics in, in Singapore and in Asia in general. Mm. I mean, the PAP has been the party of Lee Kuan Yew for the last 30 years, yeah. essentially, yeah. even after he died. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it, it was yeah, still yeah, the party yeah. of Lee Kuan Yew. He oh, won yes. the election for them, yeah. you know, essentially, in, uh, in from the afterlife. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I did so, a video where I showed how often they mentioned. They still mention him so many times in yeah. Parliament last year, right? Every time they introduce him. Yeah. Right. So, so that's the intrinsic nature of politics, I think, in, uh, and not just in, in Singapore, in, in, in much of Southeast Asia as well. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the thing about uh, the SDP, again, like I mentioned, you know, even my decision to go to Bukit Panjang uh, was something that he was not really that excited about, see, because he thought I could anchor the team in Holland Bukit Timah. Mm. And then, of course, it turned out we had, we had good people as well who were, who were made available. Mm. So, uh, so he, he's not the, the dogmatic kind of leader. He, he's pretty stubborn. And, you know, his reputation is... quite clear he's very stubborn. His, his reputation <laughs> is there. He's the guy who doesn't get... You know, the, the putaong doll. You see, he keeps, keeps bouncing back up no matter yeah. what they throw at him. But, you know, um, it's interesting. During the Pongal East by-election uh, lead-up, uh, my wife and I had lunch with him at the, the Penang place in uh, One North. And uh, after that lunch, I'll never forget this. You see, so I was walking off with my wife, and, and the thing she said to me was, he's a normal person. Yeah. I said, yeah, he's a normal person. Uh, and, you know, she said the way the media portrays it, you'd expect him to be a psychopath. Yeah, you know? yeah, in fact, yeah, that like was a term that was used. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> so he's a normal person. He's got his weaknesses. He's a bit too stubborn sometimes. And, you know, but, uh, but ultimately, he's very passionate about what he believes in. And uh, he's a firm believer in, in democracy, social justice, which mm. are things that I believe in. Okay, since you, you mentioned it, you mentioned alternatives came up. What's right. the story Tanji say just suddenly yeah. dissolving his party and coming back to the SDP? Yeah, I mean, you know... So, sorry, I, it's a bit of a gossipy it, it question. It is a bit of a yeah. gossipy question, and I have no, um, you know, inside, inside views. He's, he's been keeping in touch with some of us over a period of time. Yeah. Um, you know, he... Uh, uh, and he used this term at the press conference. It wasn't reported, but uh, we were debating about whether to use it or not. 
he said you could look at it as a prodigal son returning, <laughs> which I thought was very nice of him. You know, right. I mean, he yeah. he was he was part of the the so-called dream team in two zero one one with Vincent Vijayasinghe and Michelle Lee yes, and Ang Yong Guan, who have all gone their different ways. Yeah. But uh, um, you know, he brings a lot to the table. Mm. Uh, you know, he's got a PPE. He was uh, PPS to Go Chok Tong. Yes. Um, and when it comes to issues like economics, I'm a complete amateur. Mm. You know, I had to have a tutorial from him about this NIRC and how we're going to fund our programs. And, yeah. and he was very clear about it. Yeah. See, because he understands how the reserves work, about how the uh, investment returns occur. Right. Uh, and that's something that we need. You know, yeah. you know we're a bunch of uh, idealistic activists. Yes. So we need somebody from the establishment, you know, oh, yeah, who, yeah. who's been there, who's handled the billions of dollars and who knows what, you know, yeah. what happens when you have land sales and you have uh, NIRC and all that kind of thing. So, so yeah. overall, I think the consensus was that he, he brings a lot to the table and his heart is in the right place. As he said in his press conference, he's always standing up for the underdog. Yeah. That's the SDP. I will say this for, for GSA. Um, we had a conference on Singapore studies a few years ago and I invited a whole bunch of people, including uh, opposition politicians and people whom I thought would benefit from learning about you know, Singapore. And it was in KL because mm. you know, we can't yeah, hold a conference on Singapore studies in Singapore because there's no academic freedom here. And of all these people I invited, some establishment, some opposition, activists, whatever, mm. he was the only non-academic who right. showed up for the whole conference, okay. was really engaged, fascinated by all the things we were discussing, and really took part in all these conversations. Right. And initially, all these other academics uh, were kind of taken aback that yeah. this guy had showed up. But once he started talking, we really engaged with him. He engaged with us and he contributed a lot to the discussion. Yeah, no, I have no yeah. doubt about it. I mean, he's a big thinker. He's yeah. a deep thinker and, and he knows his stuff when yeah. it comes to economics. So, you know, you can still vote for him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is he running Ulu Panda? He is. Oh, he is. Okay. He's in Holland Bukitima with James, uh, uh, Min, But and, yeah, specifically in my ward or in the it's, others? Well, we don't believe in this divide and rule thing, right, you see. Right. So well, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, if by GRC some miracle we win, uh, yeah. we can always make sure he goes to Ulu Panda. <laughs> okay, you don't designate before. No, we don't designate oh, before. Okay, we we okay, cover okay. the whole, uh, the whole area. See. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, so uh, there's a question here. Uh, what's the least known thing about Dr. Chi that you feel people should know about? I've seen him shopping in Decathlon, which is as regular a Singaporean behavior as I know. Well, you know, I think some people know this. Uh, I, I don't know which is the websites it was that had the, the, the hulks of the 2020 general election. And everybody was under the age of 30 except for him. <laughs> so he's a, he's a marathon runner and a, uh, he does triathlons. Right. So, uh, so I think people don't realize that, that he's way fitter than I am. Yeah. <laughs> he, looks, he looks very trim, very, yes. very trim. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, from Usirapati Supia Paul, what do you think of the government civil system in Singapore for the last 60 years? I feel the whole system has to be overhauled from the top to the bottom. Uh, so I think he's actually, it's two different things because he's talking about government and the civil service. Yeah. Uh, which are the civil service part of government, but there's the political legislative wing, and then there's judiciary, there's civil yeah, service. Yeah, I think he's so. talking more about the administrative side. Okay. And uh, this is a good question because, you know, um, Philip Yeo's comments about the, the UNAC syndrome mm -hmm. uh, have been going around. And uh, a friend of mine actually interviewed uh, Niam Tong Dao mm -hmm. when he talked about the, the group thing that exists in the civil service. Right. 
And, and I think this is, it's, it's all intrinsically tied in with the political culture, yeah. as you well know. See, what I said is that, you know, when the SDP talks about uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, we're not just talking about freedom to develop a, a new computer game or, or being an entrepreneur. We're also talking about freedom to think about alternative ways of addressing problems that society mm -hmm. is facing, which is what the civil service does. Yeah. And, you know, Lim Seong Guan wrote his book, um, and, and he described an incident which I thought was really striking. He said he was working in Mindef, and uh, Go King Sui asked him to decide between tank A and tank B. And he was supposed to write a paper about tank A and tank B, and then he said, I, I prefer tank A. Then he wrote the paper, gave it to Go King Sui. And Go King Sui said, actually, I prefer tank B. Then he said, oh, shall I go back and rewrite the paper? Then Go King Sui said, no, that's the whole reason why I asked you to write the paper, so I know what was the problem with tank, tank B. But you know, the civil service now, uh, not everybody, yeah, but a significant course. proportion of them are trying to guess what the, the, their political masters want to hear. And so they write the paper trying to think, you know, mm -hmm. does the guy want tank A or does the guy want tank B? And then shall I write the paper to, to support, if I don't, you know, I'm going to be finished. If I do, I'm going to get promoted. Mm. And, and this is a consequence of the high salaries, which is what Nyam Tongdol talked about, see, is that the walk away cost is so high mm. of, of being the dissident. Right. You know, I was asked yeah. a question um, a couple of days ago about whether I get any repercussions for, for being the opposition politician in, yeah. in uh, academic and a professional situation. And I've said no, and I think I'm fortunate because you know I'm, I'm relatively senior, so yeah. so I've got my tenure. I actually thanked Cherry and George when I got my tenure. I said it's thanks to you that I think I got my tenure, <laughs> you know. But um, the interesting thing is that I get called to attend some meetings uh, out of the blue. All of a sudden, the head of department can't go, or the deputy head can't go, and they say, yeah. "Can you go?" And I say. I'm sure there's something you want me to say that you dare not say. Yeah. <laughs> and then, invariably, it is. Yeah. And so, so you know, that's the, the trouble with the civil service is this, uh, is this group think and the idea that you don't want to do something different or innovative or risky mm. because you risk losing a half a million dollar job. Right. See, if your salary was not that high and you could move across to a, a, a strong local company by, you know, run by some Tauke or other, yeah. you know, then you wouldn't mind coming yeah. up with a contrary opinion. You mm. wouldn't mind saying that Bukit Panjang doesn't need an LRT of this kind at the time. You know? mm. But because there's this group thing, you mm. know, which is fostered by a culture, a political culture, which says the guy at the top is always right. Mm. You know, yeah. that the guys at the top are the natural aristocrats. You know, they got the first class yeah. honors. They got the PS 275 in the PSLE. So therefore, yeah. they're destined to lead us. Okay. You know? Okay, uh, one, one last question, because there's an important question here from Muzamil, who says, do you think coming from a minority race, this would be an uphill task? Um, I suppose being, being an MP or being a political candidate, is, I think that's what he means, is an uphill task. Yeah. How do you handle this? Yeah, yeah. I, I have no uh, hesitation about this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, this is the thing. Um, we need to give Singaporeans a bit more credit. Mm, yes. Uh, I mean, long before the GRC system was put in place, we had good representation of Malays and Indians in, in Parliament, oh, yeah, integrations. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and this idea, there's only one political party in Singapore which thinks that a non-Chinese cannot be prime minister. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, the leader of the opposition is a guy called Pritam Singh. Yes. You know, yes. So, so what do you think? Our first chief minister was yeah, a Jew. Yeah, was a Baghdadi Jew. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, we had about 30, something 40% minorities in the 60s right. in, in parliament. Exactly. And it, the reason why it declined was because the PAP got a clean sweep in 68 and exactly. it declined all the way. And then the first non-PAP MP elected after 68 was JBJ, JBJ right. exactly, and so, he got re-elected in a ward which was 
even more uh, ethnically Chinese than, than yeah. it was in 81. And the person, the MP he replaced? Yeah. Devon Nair. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So Devon Nair yeah. was getting elected by all these, you yeah. know, by, yeah. by a cross-section of Singaporeans. Yeah. So, uh, and then JBJ. So I, I really don't see, I totally agree with you. Yeah. But have you found, uh, for example, you quite uh, prominent wrote on Facebook how you felt insulted right. by having to get that certificate. Yeah, I, I mean, I found that was really annoying. Yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully, like I said, in 10 years' time, you know, when we've got enough people to amend the Constitution or, or, or to do away with this, the, the whole GRC thing will be done away with. Yeah. Um, because it, it's, it just flies in the face of our daily lived experience. Yeah. Our daily lived experience, when you work, live and work with Singaporeans, they don't look at who you are, you yeah. know? Uh, again, maybe I'm in an elite circle, okay? Mm. Uh, in certain circles, yes, they do. And it's really yeah. annoying when people speak in a language that other people don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the bottom line is Singaporeans, I mean, look, the most popular PP politician is Tharman Chamakaratna, yes. you see? Yes. So, so I, I think this, this kind of thing is just a divide and rule strategy, mm. see? Uh, and like I said, it's the oldest trick in the book of a colonialist or somebody who's trying to control a population. And, and Singaporeans are better than that. Yeah. New narrative has documented a lot of racial discrimination in Singapore, starting from the top, of course, because what is CMIO right. and the different ways you're treated in those boxes, then it is racial discrimination by yeah. definition. But then that trickles down into the broader public and it, you see a lot of things like uh, Indians or Malays not being able to rent flats, right. you know? Uh, job ads saying things like uh, Mandarin must, speaking, yes, yeah. Mandarin speaking yeah. right? But if you apply, this they go, yeah, yeah. oh, well, actually, we want a Chinese person, yeah. you know. So how how would SDP tackle all of all of this, especially when the PAP's argument would be, oh, fragile racial harmony. If you start talking about these issues, it's going to lead that, you know, the usual slippery slope. Right. Yeah. So no, we, we actually have addressed that. Yeah. Uh, we have a Malay uh, uh, community uh, paper yeah. that, uh, that addresses that. And, and right at the core is the idea that discrimination should be illegal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That there should be no discrimination on the basis of race, language or religion mm-hmm. in Singapore. Or gender. Or gender, exactly. Yes. And, uh, uh, and so that's right there in our policy. It's available on our website. Okay. You know? And uh, obviously the Malay community is a community which suffers the most. Yeah. You know? and, and, and this kind of thing, like reserving the presidency for, for a Malay person, or somebody who belongs to the Malay community who may not necessarily be Malay. But, you know, that, that is, is, is really cynical. Because when we talk to so many of the Malay members of the SDP and, and Malay friends and colleagues, they'll tell you they would much rather have, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a quote, a reserved uh, Malay number in the Air Force or in the, mm. in the Navy, you mm. know, rather than uh, in the presidency. I mean, who cares about the the presidency with all due respect it's it's an important titular position but in terms of a daily life in terms of the chances for their children to to do well you know they'd much rather have the uh, the air force uh, scholar route or the navy route or, mm. or other avenues which are essentially um, uh, limited for malay singaporeans right okay yes. thank you so much for yeah. giving us almost and what an hour and a, okay. uh, and a, quite a bit okay. um i i know you're very busy so thank you so much thank you uh, paul i shake your hand but we can't yeah, do we that can. right now right uh thank you to all of you for uh for tuning in um and once again thank you to paul all the best for you to you in the upcoming election thank you very much <laughs>